Uh, starting today, we're going to be moving into a three-part series on God, grace, and money. Uh, words rolling off my tongue right now will no doubt elicit various reactions in this room. The subject of money tends to do that. Some of you might be thinking, I don't like it when the church talks about money. Can't we take a permanent time out from that topic? Please don't guilt me this morning. And some others of you may be thinking, I'm so glad that St. Peter's is talking about this topic. I can't stand it when people act like they know God but live stingy and ungenerous lives. Down with the hypocrisy. And then a third group might have this response in mind. What does money have to do with being a Christian? I thought God was in the business of saving souls. And of course, there may be some guests. If you're a guest, please know again, no one invited you here for your money. But if I were you, I might want to know exactly how the church talks about money and what it believes when it comes to the dollars. <laughs> Whatever may be on your mind this moment or nothing at all, if you're still waiting for that coffee to kick in, money is something we have to discuss. The foremost reason that we have to discuss money is because it is something that Jesus discusses. Not rarely, not from time to time, but often in a direct, bold, and urgent manner. Consider. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables, more than 50%, are concerned with how God's people handle money and possessions. More than 50%. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses deals directly with the subject of money. And in the wider context of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, get this, you will find 500 verses on prayer, you will find 500 verses on faith, but you will find 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Friends, this is a subject about which God has an opinion. The frequency and the urgency of what Jesus says here lines up well with our context. We, the good people of Vancouver, need to hear what he says on this subject. We live in a city with a history, and it affects us whether we like it or not. The Nobel laureate from the American South, William Faulkner, once said this, The past is not dead, it's not even the past. Mmm, enigmatic. Profound, I know, still trying to figure out what that means, but you get the point. <laughs> One local historian had this to say about Vancouver's heritage. Look at why people first moved here. It wasn't for God, it was for money. The economy of these parts has always offered the prospect of great wealth, even in a boom-bust context. There's been gold, there's been timber, there's been oil, and lately, as is the case, there's been property. Vancouver was once an inexpensive beach village. But between the World Expo in 1986 and the 2010 Olympics, it has remade itself into a great metropolitan region with spectacular scenery and urban livability that is a magnet. The draw has been so substantial that our city is now ranked as one of the most expensive places to live in the world. It takes money to enjoy this dream. It's a dream that is built squarely on money's alleged capacity to procure the good life a lot of discontentment in Vancouver is linked with not seeming to have enough of it. I once heard a story about a Vietnamese woman who emigrated to California. Her parents came to visit. She was taking them on a tour of the city. They walked past a large bank and she said, Here, Mom and Dad, this is where Americans go to worship. The same, I think, could be said of our city. This is the water in which we swim. And as with all swimming, the water gets into you, which, by the way, is why we put chlorine in pools. This is why we desperately need to listen to what Jesus has to say today. He wants us to have great and beautiful lives. 
And while money is part of that, it can also ruin it. Now, as we approach the text that you just heard read out loud, I want you to keep in mind something about Jesus' general teaching on money. It's always been a tough message to hear. It's always been a tough message to apply. Just consider his first disciples. They were totally befuddled by what Jesus said about money. In their time, it was assumed that people who had a lot of money, the wealthy, were people who were favored by God. But Jesus says, not so fast. He breaks down that stereotype. Remember Matthew 19, 24? I'll read it for you in case your memory is short this morning. Again, I tell you, says Jesus, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think that, I don't think that the problem that Jesus is, is dealing with in his first disciples is our problem. This is not a prosperity gospel church. Right? We don't necessarily associate great wealth with God's blessing. Our problem lies elsewhere. I call it the problem of monetary autonomy. Monetary autonomy. Whether knowingly or unawares, we tend to see money as the chief source of a well-lived, secure, happy, beautiful life. And that attitude towards money makes it your God. But we can only have one Lord. That's the essential message of Jesus' words this morning. It's a message which brings us to a crossroads that we prefer to stay far away from. It's a message with an imperative. Choose your God. Now, don't let that question, don't let that imperative slip far from mind as we dig into the text. And as we do, I want to draw your attention to three themes in Jesus' words from Matthew 6 this morning. I want to talk to you about a rivalry. I want to talk to you about a response. And I want to talk to you about a remedy. Rivalry, response, remedy. I'm getting very good at alliteration. A rivalry. Look at Matthew 6, 24 and 21. Start with 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And look back a few lines at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Now let me start by treating a common misunderstanding of these verses and other verses like them from the mouth of Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus is not telling his original listeners that they should forsake the use of cash, coin, and credit card, which, by the way, they didn't have at that time, in case you didn't know. Jesus is not urging us to return to a barter economy. We don't want you to start putting powdered eggs and ramen noodles in the offering basket here. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying there's no place to save money. He's not telling us that bank accounts are taboo, and he's not calling us to give up our salaries. In short, Jesus is not calling us to what has sometimes been known as the aesthetic lifestyle. This type of conclusion, right, has on more than one occasion been a pitfall of certain brands of Christian spirituality. Right? But authentic Christian existence is not bound up with a life of poverty and penury. What Jesus says elsewhere makes that clear. So you can admire St. Francis of Assisi without concluding that his particular way of life most truthfully embodies God's standard. Perish the thought. So what is Jesus getting at here? The issue isn't with currency per se, but with our attitude towards it and what it means to us. So here in Matthew 6, God incarnate is looking at human existence, our existence, and he's pressing us to a radical reinterpretation of it. He's compelling a change in perspective, substantial Jesus is saying, here's a pair of glasses. Put them on so that you can see things as they actually are. 
That's what these verses are doing. If you don't see that, you will always misunderstand and misapply them. Let me give you an analogy here. Most of you know the word Caesar. That word hails from antiquity. It's from the Roman times, right? It's a word that has different types of meaning. In the first place, Caesar refers to this gentleman here, Gaius Julius Caesar, right? Very concrete. It was his name. But that word means more. It's a title located at the center of the Roman Empire. It's a term that points to the socioeconomic order that Rome imposed on the known world. So Caesar refers to much, much more than just the family name of that gentleman. That is precisely what Jesus is saying about money here in Matthew chapter 6. What he's saying is that when it comes to money, in the context of human history, there's more than meets the eye. Mammon. As the Aramaic Greek word that appears right here in this passage. Mammon signifies something more than cash or coin. The clues are in verse 24. The first word is that word mammon, right? That's, that's a word that the root of that word is amon. Guess what that means? It means trust and reliance. That means currency. It means trust and reliance. Amon, mammon means something that you trust in for your well-being other than God. That's what that word means. And the second indicator is the Greek word kurios, which is also behind this verse. That's the, that's the word that's translated master or Lord. Jesus applies it to money. He's personifying mammon. See, when Jesus talks about money, he's not just talking about coin and cash in the straightforward sense. Commentators say that he's using this as a reference to a force which would rival the lordship of God. In this context, Jesus is saying that mammon is a lordless power, a lordless power. This is how Karl Barth, a great theologian of the 20th century, puts it in an absolutely brilliant exposition of mammon. Lordless powers are antichrists, right? Then that word, antichrist, just means something that wants to be lord instead of God. That's what antichrist means, right? The ancient Jews knew this. That is why they did not allow Roman currency to be brought into the temple of God in Jerusalem. Do we know this? I want to talk a bit more about lordless powers and mammon, which is a lordless power this morning. I want to talk about where they come from. I want to talk about what they do. Where do they come from? What's their origin? The Bible says that lordless powers like mammon are byproducts of human sinfulness. Now, as I use that term, human sinfulness, right there, I, what I mean is this. It just refers to a state of alienation and estrangement from God. And out of that state of alienation and estrangement from God, we, we attempt to live a lordless life. We, we attempt autonomy. In our attitude towards God, we act like chronic two-year-olds. I don't need your help. I'll do it myself. Stay away, please. That's what we do. The Bible says all of that is part of our ongoing attempt to taste the promise of the serpent in Genesis 3, chapter 5, you shall be like gods. You shall be like gods. But actually, what plays out is quite different. See, apart from God's lordship, human creativity and capacity brings things or powers into existence which have a tendency to escape human control. We try to play God. We try to organize the world our way, but things go awry. Trying to be autonomous from God, we end up getting enslaved again. And that's because the autonomy that we seek is a myth 
and an illusion. There is no such thing as a lordless life. But there is such thing as lordless power that will dominate your life. That's how lordless powers are spawned. They come in the form of systems and forces and institutions and conventions and collective cultural habits that penetrate and control our hearts and our deepest desires. They capture our yearnings and our dreams, and they demand our allegiance. These lordless powers, says one commentator, are, quote, the hidden wire pullers of humanity's great and small enterprises and movements and achievements. For those of you who like Lord of the Rings, they're kind of like wraiths. They don't have a full objective existence, but they can still exert considerable power and influence over the things around them. That's what Jesus is saying about men. And let me illustrate this. Some of you may remember the older Disney cartoon. Not my normal go-to illustration, but I like this one. It's called Fantasia. It was re-released in 2000. It stars Mickey Mouse. One of the vignettes in Fantasia is a depiction of this old story called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's from the 18th century in Germany. It was written by a man called Goethe. What a name, Goethe. The story has two key characters, a great wizard and his little apprentice. That's Mickey Mouse, right? Mickey's job is to carry the water buckets for the wizard and dump them into the reservoir. Well, he gets a bit fed up with it. And so once the wizard steps out, he attempts to make a spell on his own to make his life easier. He wants to do things his way, and so he brings a broom to life. And the broom does the water carrying for him. Yet then the reservoir gets filled up but the broom won't stop, right? It keeps bringing in more and more water, and then things got out of hand, and it starts overflowing. And in a desperate attempt to retake control, Mickey gets a hatchet, and he smashes the broom up. But then all the little pieces become other brooms, and they start carrying more and more water, and there's a flood, and it's chaos, and Mickey is at the mercy of the bewitched brooms. And he sees how foolish and impotent he is. He wanted to be in charge, but he got schooled. In our own experience, we know this. We can see this in the world, right? The recession of 2008 is not too far in the rearview mirror. Sure, there are unsavory bankers to blame. There's personal greed, but there's more. To explain what happened, you can't just point the list at a finger of felons, right? Something more was at play. A system created by humans which launched a subtle coup d'etat and seized control and drove otherwise decent and honest people, and even Christian people, and I, for, I know for a fact, even Christian people, to contribute to financial catastrophe. On this note, let me speak a bit more about the activity of lordless powers, of which mammon is one. What do they do? What does mammon do, right? What's its handiwork? Three things I want to highlight. Firstly, it promises autonomy, but it takes control. Look at verse 21 again. It gets into our hearts. In the Bible, the word heart, the human heart, refers not to the aortas and all that sort of stuff. It, it refers to the seed of your emotions, your will, your hopes, your desires. That's what heart means. Mammon gets into all of that. It occupies you. We may create the mammon system, but then it turns the tables. It's like the Trojan horse. We let it in, but then it takes control, baby. It does all of this, of course, in a pretty sneaky way, right? It's very stealthy. We're not even always aware of its influence, part of the reason why Jesus talks about it so much. 
It prefers to operate incognito. It's all part of the ruse. In other words, you may think you use money, but you better believe money uses you. That's why we need Jesus to enlighten us right here. When mammon is in control, you may think you're free, but you're only free to run around in a cage because it's got your heart. We live out of our hearts. That's what Jesus is telling us right here. Second thing, mammon co-ops our lives, your lives and my life, to add to the disorder and ugliness of the world. Look at verse 22 and 23. It's kind of enigmatic verses here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Took me a while to, uh, what on earth does that mean? That's an enigmatic statement. You know why? Because the, the way that we understand how eyeballs work has changed. That's why. But we can understand this. Our modern view of how the eyeball works is like a camera, right? Light comes in and it gets processed by the ocular nerves. But in the ancient world, that is not how people thought about how eyeballs worked. They thought of them more like flashlights, right? The eye emitted light, which illuminated things so that you could see them. I know it seems kind of bizarre, right? But it's called the extramission theory of perception. And if you want to talk in more detail about that, I'm sure our resident sense expert, Richard Sandlin, will be available after this sermon. The, the origin of the military salute is actually rooted in this ancient theory of perception. You salute your superiors, it's, you cover your eyes because the, the great generals had such bright light coming out, they would blind you. So you cover your eyes when you salute them like that. That's the background of Jesus' remarks. He's saying mammon shapes the way we see. It shapes the way we see the world and other people, and not for the better but rather in a way that adds to the disorder and ugliness that pervade this world of ours. And let me do a little excursus here. As a local sociologist called Craig Gay, two of his sons are in this congregation, and he has a great book I read last week where he really kind of expands on what, what we're learning here from this passage, right? It's a book called Cash Values. And he argues in that book that money acts back on us. It acts back on us. In other words, our reliance and continual use of money in the mammon system, it affects our identity, our sense of self, and our relationships with other humans. It fosters the impression that we are independent and autonomous. It makes us feel like we're in control and powerful, above reproach. And if you have enough of it, it makes you feel more competent and knowledgeable than you really are. That's what money does. You know this. It shapes our view of other people and human relationships. Neil Postman once quipped that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Similarly, when you're, when you're inhabiting, uncritically inhabiting the mammon system, everything and everybody starts looking like a commodity. Money has a way of depersonalizing human relations. Quality gets reduced to quantity. And this can happen as easily as the needle on a compass goes north. This leaves our souls rather empty. It sucks us into patterns of existence that have a dehumanizing effect on the world. Right? That's how mammon undermines a life that touches into our deepest desires and needs. That's how mammon mutates us so that we amplify rather than push back the disorder and ugliness of the world. And the third thing about mammon's activity, and this brings it full circle, it plays God. That's what Jesus is saying right here. See, mammon doesn't just want to be used. It wants to be worshipped. It wants to be depended upon. It wants to be seen as our basic source of comfort and well-being. 
I call it the Volvo effect. Driving the Volvo, you're safe and secure and comfortable. I ride a Volvo. I have to fight that idolatry every day, right? <laughs> the Volvo effect, right? Wants to be a false savior. Again, look at verse 24. It wants devotion. It wants us to sit at its feet. This is why Jesus personifies it as a rival Lord. Jesus warns us about this in money in Matthew, Matthew 6. This is what he's getting at in this passage, right? The libertarian philosopher Ayn Rand once quipped that money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you wish, but it will not replace you as the driver. Wishful thinking. Actually, dangerously naive thinking, says Jesus. Are you listening? Do you see the deadly rivalry between God and mammon that characterizes reality according to Jesus right here in Matthew 6? Now, to the extent that you do, to the extent that you recognize and grasp what Jesus is revealing to us, you're going to see that a response is necessary. See, sometimes things that we hear in this life, we cannot just tolerate them or respond passively or within action, right? Sometimes you can't just be a spectator. I mean, just think of what we've been hearing from Donald Trump lately. That back mole has become malignant. It's time somebody's got to make a response. So, too, with what Jesus is saying here. It begs for a response, right? Look, at, look again at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for, for either he or she, sorry, ladies, you're not excluded from this one, either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or he or she will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is not making a bland statement here. This is a statement that should annoy and sting, and no one is exempt, not me, not you. The word master that's used here in verse 24, right? This, this word originates in a slave culture. It does not refer to an employer. It refers to someone who owns you. Someone who owns you. And there are two things that Jesus is getting at with this choice of word, with this language. On the one hand, he's saying that we always have a master. Someone or something always owns us. And we don't normally think this way. In fact, we don't even like to think this way. It really makes us, our individual sensibilities cringe. But to be a Christian is to be owned by God, to be totally committed to God. And if you won't be owned by God, says Jesus right here, then other things will take over willy-nilly and your life will be dominated. Things like mammon. Now, on the other hand, Jesus is saying that we can't have two masters at the same time. Right? To anyone from the New Testament period, the idea that a slave could have two masters would have been absurd. It would have been laughable. Slave ownership was not like car to go. One master. So Jesus is not making a morality statement here. He's not, he's not saying we should try not to serve two masters. You should try not to serve two masters. He's saying you can't. You cannot do it. It's time to end the pretense. It's time to take in God we trust off the U.S. dollar. Jesus wants us to take this to heart this morning, not just to nod in affirmation, right? That's not enough. He's asking for a decisive response. And along these lines, to make that response, a little bit of discernment is necessary on all of our parts individually, but we do it together. On the one hand, we need to examine our lives. We need to let God examine our lives. We need to look at what we desire, how we behave, what we value, how we organize our lives, and we need to say, to discern our true master. What's our true master? 
I mean, in a practical way, how do we know if we've cast our lot with mammon? Let me say, let me say something here before I go further. You can identify as a Christian and be very sincere with it, but still be beholden to mammon. And you can even be generous and give money away, but still bow down at the feet of mammon. How do we know? How do you know if you're in bed with mammon? Right? How do you know if you're being smothered by its allure? It's gotten into you. Like, let me put a few probes out there. These are for you, and these are for me. Do you feel more secure and stable from a bank balance confirmation than when you leave church on Sunday, having heard how God thinks of you? Does your standard of living increase every time you get a raise? And is that your assumption about what should happen? Unchallenged assumption. When you underpay for something or when you get overpaid, are you tempted to stay silent? You're tempted to classify that as a surprise windfall, even if it means someone else might get in trouble or even fired later? When money is short, do you panic even if you're part of a church? Mammon is great at undermining healthy human interdependence. Depend on me and me alone. It's great at making us feel ashamed to reach out for help, even though that is why God has brought us together as a people. When you think about tomorrow, do you always think you'd like to have more money rather than less? Have you ever had the opposite thought? Ooh, that's a tough one. Have you ever kept quiet in the face of injustice or, or perhaps malfeasance or fraud or graft in the workplace? Why'd you do that? Why'd you keep quiet? Were you scared about losing your access to mammon, which you need to live? Do you experience recurring financial anxiety, worried about sliding into poverty and destitution? Statistically, that's very, very common in our culture, but very, very rare in the world's poorest. I don't have to point out the irony. When money is tight and when you get hit with unexpected expenses and costs, do you immediately go into, what can I do to get some more to take care of this? Or do you stop and pray that God could do something equally as unexpected to take care of you? What do you lean on in those moments? Does the thought of winning the lottery excite you and fill your dreams in a way that vastly overshadows the joy and excitement you have in being connected to God? Do we recognize ourselves in any of this? I know I do. And I bet there's at least one other person in this room who does. It goes without saying that being in bed with the mammon does not exactly enable us to live generous and selfless lives. Rather, it, it makes us live lives that can be ugly and don't make the world a more beautiful place. So we got to discern. we got to discern. But we got to discern something else, too. we got to discern the foolishness of, of a mammon-worshipping life. That's what Jesus' argument is right here in these verses. Look at verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Right, this is what I call a common-sense argument. Worshipping mammon is foolish. To put it bluntly, it leads us to do pretty stupid things. In 1922, Howard Carter discovered, opened, and emptied a tomb of the ancient Egyptian pharaoh, King Tut. had a chance to see it when I was a kid. It was filled with all sorts of worldly treasure, right? That was the custom of the Egyptian royalty and many other cultures. And we look at that custom and kind of snicker, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing. That's what happens when you locate your well-being and sense of security in mammon. You cling to it. You amass. You surround yourself with it. Even though all that money and everything it can ever buy comes with an expiration date. Every flower will wither. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You only have to be a Christian to see that. Entropy is the law of nature. Our bodies and all that we have deteriorates. It's a common sense argument. We need to discern. And out of this discernment, we need to make a response. The Bible calls this repentance. You can also call it renunciation. It's about switching your allegiances. You move from Master Mammon to Lord Jesus. You do this to escape a way of life that is stupid and ugly, to put it bluntly. You do this not just once, but often. And in this context, probably quite frequently. Have you ever done this? Do you need to do it now? In closing, I want to talk about the remedy. The choice that Jesus is putting before us is an unsettling one. That's probably why I felt squirmish all week while I was writing this sermon. It's a terrifying one, in fact. He's calling us to renounce our reliance on mammon. He's calling us to repent. Inversely, though, Jesus is saying, rest in me. Rely on me. Let me take care of you. That's what he's saying. There's a part of us that savors those words. They have a self-evident appeal. But there's another part of us that doubts. We have fears. Fear. Fear. That's a good thing to ponder at this exact moment. Fear is something that is at the heart of sinfulness, according to the Bible. According to Genesis, sin entered the world because humans for a moment thought that God was not going to take care of them. And we've never really recovered from that. That's, that's the very same fear that continues to feed mammon's reign and authority. It keeps mammon installed as an overlord over so many human lives. And the whole thing, says Jesus, is a terrible waste because we were not made to live in fear but in faith. That's why he invites us to make a change this morning. But Jesus doesn't just point to the remedy. Jesus is the remedy. He is the remedy. Look quickly at verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We are richer than we think, but not because of Scotiabank. Jesus is telling us that he can offer us something more than mammon, something that does not fade, something that does not decay, something that will satisfy every deep, profound human desire we have and that otherwise drives us to throw our love and reliance into mammon. And he can do all that without inciting us into a life marked by selfishness and fear. That's real power. That's real hope. That's a lot more than mammon can offer. I mean, you can have all the money in the world. You can ha even have a sense of security and stability, but it's always fragile. That Volvo can always run off a cliff. It can always break down in a desert. Money can't stop every disease. It can't avert every tragedy. It can't ward off every death. And while it certainly contributes to our well-being, there is a law of diminishing returns that kicks in. I think the limited power of mammon is reflected in the limited utility of cash and coin in the plain sense word, right? In and of themselves, they can't take care of us. They, you can't eat cash, right? It can't clothe you. It can't provide a house for you in and of itself. It has limits, just like mammon, which it represents. But God can do that. He has the capacity. That is what Jesus spent his life teaching and demonstrating. To be a Christian my friends, is to trust this, and it is to trust that God is right now taking steps for our provision. And in the end, as he indicates here in verse 24, we can be sure that every loss we experience in this world will be swallowed up by gain. God can make that happen, but mammon can't. But will God do this?
Does God desire to care for us in this way? That's the real question for our hearts right now, right? Unless we can trust God in that way, we will never be able to renounce mammon as often as we need to. Can we trust God in this way? And the answer is yes, we can. Yes, we can. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 tells us these beautiful words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes and for my sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Mammon says this. It says, come sit at my feet. Serve me. I'll give you a little bit of money. I can offer you a sense of stability and pleasure, but it's fleeting. Jesus Christ says something totally different and better. He says, I have let go of my infinite wealth for the time being. I have come into your life at great cost, and I am here to serve and help you. I'm going to get down and wash your feet, and then I want you to put them on my back so I can lift you up for the life that you were made to live, a life of adventure, of joy, of purpose, a life of provision, a life of generosity, a life of profound connection with God and each other. That's what Jesus did. He did what's necessary to make that happen. That's the remedy for our misguided allegiance to mammon. But in doing that, Jesus paid a price. See, whereas mammon tends to take our hearts and spoil them and darken them, Jesus gives us his heart, his light, his life at great cost. Derision, poverty, humiliation, and death. That's what Jesus, Jesus faced all of those things that we so constantly rely on mammon to try to avoid. And he did that for us. He did that for me, and he did that for you so that we might have this thing called life abundant, which we can hardly imagine. Do you need any more proof of God's love and commitment to you? Do I? So when Jesus says here in Matthew 6, choose me, let me be your Lord, you can run into his arms with confidence. Not only does he have the power to take care of us, it is his joy to do so, and it's beautiful. Make the change. Make it again. Make it permanent.